I'm going to read to you Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. That's the section we're going to be studying tonight. Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. <clears throat> Remember, the angel is still speaking, and he says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But the, she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in its place, or in his place, he shall come against the army and enter the fortresses of the king, fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand." But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage." Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Now we're going to cover all of this tonight, and hopefully by the end of the night, this will make sense to you. Because I'm pretty sure as I read this to you, y'all weren't going, oh, I understand that. Oh, I get that. You probably were going, I'm lost. North, south, east, where are we going? Well, that's what my role is tonight, to help you see that, well, 
We're going to take the next few weeks of our study and the rest of our study to break down and unpack the vision for Israel, remember, and the land. That's what Gabriel, sorry, not Gabriel, Gabriel came in chapter 9 and told him 40, uh, 77s are decreed for your people in the land. And then in chapter 10, this other angel comes and gives them the vision of what is to come written from the book of truth. All right. Now, as you're going to see the detailed prophecies in this chapter and the next number over one hundred prophecies just in these two chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's over a hundred specific prophecies and they can be matched exactly with people and events that happened in world history in the years right after Daniel's vision. We're going to get as far as chapter 20 tonight and we're going to pick up next time we meet in, chap- in, chap- in chapter, chapter 11, verse 20, as far as we're going to get tonight. And then when we meet back together, we're going to pick up in verse 21 to the end of the chapter, and we're going to continue on. But as far as you're going to see tonight, every little detail that has been laid out to Daniel will, has already been literally fulfilled specifically to the nth detail. And I'm going to lay that out for you tonight in world history. The exactness and the accuracy of these prophecies being fulfilled has caused many, quote-unquote, scholars to say Daniel was written later on by someone other than Daniel because no human being could predict the future this accurately. But remember, Daniel's not writing this by himself. He's simply recording the visions that he had been given by God's messengers, the angels. Also, if you already know, hopefully you do remember, that many other prophets were inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write exact specific prophecies, like Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It was laid out specifically. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey, not only on a donkey, but on a fault or a coal of a, 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 a young child of a donkey. And let me just tell you, uh, uh, it was a foal of a donkey. That's what I was trying to say. All right, go to Psalm 22, and let me give you another example of specific prophecy that was fulfilled literally, but even though it was written hundreds of years before. Psalm 22, we're going to read verses 14 through 18. Psalm 22, verse 14, the Holy Spirit's inspiring David to write this. And David writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. By the way, who's this talking about? Jesus, very clearly as he hung on the cross, and all his bones were out of joint, and he was thirsty, and they pierced his hands and his feet and cast lots for his clothing. It was written hundreds of years prior to when Jesus actually came onto the earth, but the detail was extremely specific. If you remember at the end of our study last time, at the end of chapter 10, the angel tells Daniel, I'm going to tell you what's written in the book of truth. Remember, it wasn't the Bible, but it was this book that has been written of all that's going to happen on the earth. And he says, I'm going to show you the truth. Let me show you one more passage of scripture that should help you realize Daniel didn't write this. Yes, he did write it physically, but it was the Holy Spirit through him that was giving him all this insight as he got it from the angels. Uh, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 20 and 21. 
Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't know why some quote-unquote Bible scholars have a problem with the fact that Daniel could write in such detail what was going to happen in the years to come. The Bible's full of prophecies like this that were fulfilled later on specifically. Now, I also want you to get excited because by the end of tonight, if you don't get overwhelmed with the history, you're going to also hopefully even more believe that the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will literally happen just like the Bible says they will. If you've ever done a study of the book of Revelation, too many people try to say that it's apocalyptic literature and it's, it's symbolic. No, actually four times in the book of Revelation, God says these things must take place. By the way, that word must in the book of Revelation four times is the exact same word must as you see in John chapter 3 where Jesus says you must be born again. By the way, does must mean must there? Yes, and in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Same word. And four times in the book of Revelation, it says these things must take place. And at the end of the book, it says this, that you need to not take away any of the words of the prophecy of this book. The book of Revelation is not symbolic writing that just simply says we win. No, it is prophecy and it's going to happen. And by the end of tonight, you're going to see that Daniel was told way before what was going to happen next actually happened, specific details of who's going to do what to who and who's going to win and who's going to lose and who's going to give their daughter in marriage. And it's crazy how specific this is going to be. So let's start unpacking what God has for us tonight. Look at Daniel chapter 11 and look at verse 1. Remember this, a lot of Bible teachers, and I'm with them, think that they shouldn't have put chapter 11 right here. I think this is a continuation of what the angel was saying at the end of chapter 12. He says in verse 21 of chapter 10, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, because the angel's still speaking, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now hang on for a second. You remember our earlier study. Who is the king? This is a tricky question here, so stick with me. Who is the king of Persia at this time? Who is the king of Persia? Cyrus. Very good. Remember, Cyrus is the one who came and defeated the Babylonian nation and all that. And Darius is someone that Cyrus quickly appointed to be over Babylon and the Chaldeans. Go back with me to Daniel chapter uh, 9. And look at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years. So we, chapter 9 starts when he gets his vision of the 77s from Gabriel in the first year of Darius the Mede. Okay? Now go back with me to chapter 10. This vision, chapter 10, verse 1, this vision that we're in the middle of here happens in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. You see that in 10, chapter 10, verse 1? In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. 
the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, coincides with the first year of Darius. Because right after Cyrus became king of Persia, he almost immediately made Darius the Mede over Babylon. That's why in your little piece of paper, you'll see down on the bottom in the square, the, the persons who would rule and their dates. You have Cyrus, but then right after Cyrus, in parentheses, is Darius. That's just to let you know that he's kind of reigning at the same time, but he's over Babylon. Go with me to Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over th them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then as Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Does anybody remember what happened in the rest of chapter 6? Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel in the lion's den, even though it's in chapter 6, is in the first year of Darius, which is the first year of Cyrus. Go back to Daniel 11 now. Remember, this is now the third year of Cyrus, which is the third year of Darius, that he gets this vision. But in chapter 11, verse 1, look at what the angel tells Daniel. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Hang on for a second, folks. You got to stick with me here because something cool's going on. What year of Darius is this that the angel is speaking? It's the third year. He's speaking of the first year, but he's speaking in the third year. You, you understand what I'm saying? Remember, this vision in starts in chapter 10. It's in the third year of Cyrus, which is also the third year of Darius. But he's telling him two years ago, in the first year of Darius, I went and strengthened Darius the Mede. We've always seen the angels strengthening Christians and those who believe in, in God. But the angel actually went and strengthened Darius the Mede. Any, any idea why? Well, if you know anything... You remember in that whole story of, of uh, Daniel in the lion's den, was Darius wanting Daniel to be put in the lion's den? No, he loved Daniel. He made him over. He was going to make him over the whole kingdom. And he actually was the one that ran to the pit and said, did your God help you? I hope you made it through the night. Because Darius was pro-Israel, the angel was actually working on his behalf. Remember our study last time we were together? We looked at the spiritual battle that's going on and how there's battles going on between the angels and the demons and there's princes over certain areas and there are angels over certain areas and, and nations. This angel, during the time of the first year of Darius, was actually strengthening, encouraging Darius during that time because he was pro-Israel. And that's also the same time that Daniel got his vision of the 77s. Now, a couple of years later, in the third year of Darius, in the third year of Cyrus, he's getting another vision laid out for him. All right? You know in Daniel, sorry, Genesis chapter 12, God says very clearly that I will bless every nation that blesses Israel and I'll curse everyone that doesn't. Folks, you want to pray for our country? Just pray that we're pro-Israel. Seriously. Pray that we're pro-Israel. You can get into all this other political stuff, but the bigger issue is how we are for Israel will determine how things go for us as a nation. And the more we try to tell them to divide their land, the less we're going to have angelic help and the blessing of God. Go to Ezra chapter 1. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Remember, Cyrus is the king of Persia. What in the world's he doing making an edict that all these people can leave Babylon, go on back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, and rebuild their temple? God was moving to stir his heart to do that. Again, because he was pro-Israel, God strengthened him and blessed him in his leadership and also used him to bless Israel. So I just wanted to point out to you, that, again, the spiritual battle that's going on and how on this, these instances the, the angels are winning and strengthening, at this time, pagan kings. Now look at verse 2, though, of chapter 11. Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So who's the king of Persia right now? Cyrus. After Cyrus, he says there's going to be three more kings. And then after that one is going to be, after those three, is going to be a fourth and he's going to be richer than all of them, and he's actually going to go and attack Greece. Now, you have on your piece of paper the four kings. After Cyrus was Cambyses, and then Pseudosmertus, then Darius I, and then Xerxes. Xerxes is this fourth one that is referenced here and is richer than all the others, and he actually is the one who went and attacked Greece. More on that later. Now, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you want to go look at Esther chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see Xerxes mentioned in the book of Esther. You won't recognize him right away because his name in the book of Esther is Ahasuerus, but Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same guy, okay? One's a Greek name and one's a, diff- uh, a Chaldean name and all that kind of stuff. So here's what I want you to understand. At the time of the book of Esther is happening during... Xerxes' reign, which you've had Cyrus, Camses, Pseudosmertus, Darius I, then Xerxes. During Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is when Esther happens. All right? Now, history will show that actually Persia had eight more kings after Xerxes, before Alexander the Great would come and conquer Persia in 334 B.C. Look on your paper again. Like I told you, these are going to be very helpful for you. These kings that are listed on your chart, they stop in 465 B.C., but actually in 334 B.C. is the first time that Alexander the Great comes on the scene and he takes over and the Persian Empire comes to an end when Alexander the Great and Greece takes over. Why is there a break in the history? Because actually in history, there are eight more kings still to happen in Persia. Now, why aren't they mentioned here? Well, they're kind of inconsequential with what's going on. The vision from the angel is to Daniel about what's going to happen during these 490 years that are still left for Israel to accomplish those six things we looked at. And at the same time, those other kings don't really play into that as much as Xerxes does because he's the one who's going to go against and attack Greece and he's going to start waking up Greece 
and getting them kind of mad. And we're going to touch on a little bit later what starts to happen and how that ties in. So was Xerxes the last king of, of Persia? No, there were eight more. But he's mentioned here to, because he went after Greece. All right. Now, if you remember from our study of chapter 8, Alexander's hatred of Persia stemmed from Xerxes' attack on Greece and also how a later king in Persia, one named Darius III, had helped in the assassination of Alexander the Great's father. Remember when we talked about that? How Darius III helped fund the assassination of Alexander the Great's dad? And that was made Alexander the Great super mad toward Persia. And when he came, he wiped them all out. So, Daniel chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, then briefly mentions Alexander the Great. Tell me this doesn't sound familiar from what we studied in chapter 8. Look at chapter 11, 3 through 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, if you remember from our study, Alexander the Great came in and he started wiping out everybody, conquering super fast. Remember, we saw that goat that was going across the, the land super fast, and it was super mad against Persia and the bear. And then, if you remember from our study, after 10 years, Alexander the Great had conquered everything all around, and he was about to go into India, and his army actually rebelled and said, we're exhausted. <laughs> and then he went back to the area that was his kingdom. And you remember, he died early at the height of his power, because of all the war wounds that he never re recovered from. from the, he had malaria. He also had a problem with drinking and eating too much, and he died early. Did his kingdom go to his descendants? No, it didn't. It's even said here. Remember, it was divided to who? His four generals. We listed them before, and you're going to see them again tonight. Two of his generals are Casamachus and, uh, uh, or, let me try it again, Lysimachus and Cassander. All right, so Lysimachus and Cassander are the two of the four generals that his kingdom gets divided to, but you're not going to see them anymore here in our prophecy because one's given the kingdom of the east and the other one's given the kingdom of the west. The two kings, the ones who are going to be in charge of the north and the south, are the ones who are going to be in our study. And those two guys are listed here now in your top of your piece of paper, uh, the kings of the south and the kings of the north. The first king of the south is going to be Ptolemy, Ptolemy I, and the first king of the north is going to be Seleucus I. All right? So, in Daniel chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, the prophecy said that there's going to be a mighty king who arises. And, and remember, it's because Xerxes went against Greece, got them all fired up, then they tried to help, us, help the assassination of his dad. So many years later, they aren't mentioned in our prophecy, in comes Alexander the Great. But at the height of his rule, his kingdom's going to be uh, broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, to the four generals, but not to his posterity or his children. And they're not going to have the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now look at verses 5 and following. In verses 5 through 20, where we're going to be tonight now, I'm going to break it down little by little and hopefully have you track with me to see how specific the prophecy is, and I'm going to give you the history. And I'm going to try to do it as fast as I can without losing you so I don't kill you. But at the same time, I'd like you to at least track with me, all right? So the northern kingdom is Syria. The southern kingdom is Egypt. 
And but does anybody have an idea what's between Syria and Egypt? Israel, the glorious land. And as you're about to see, all these battles of these two commanders, but then goes to their descendants, goes between, when they start fighting with each other, Israel's in the middle, and they're going to be taken captive back and forth and back and forth and back and forth as a pawn. All right? Now, look at verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong. By the way, what's his name? Ptolemy who? The first. Very good. The king of the south, Ptolemy the first, shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. All right. Ptolemy the first founded a powerful dynasty in Egypt, while Seleucus would make a stronger one in Syria. Now, they joined forces to help Seleucus conquer Syria and the land of Israel, also known as Palestine at that time. But Ptolemy the first broke with Seleucus and took Palestine, making a part of the Egyptian empire. Thus starting wars between the two empires, with Israel in between as a pawn who would suffer because of it. So at this point, who's in charge? The north or the south? Who's in charge of Israel? The south. Good, you're staying with me. Look at verse 6 now. After some years, they're going to make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure... But she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. All right. After some years, perhaps in an attempt to ease tensions between the two empires, Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II now. Okay, we're at Ptolemy II at this point. The daughter of Ptolemy II was married to Antiochus Theos. All right. So we've already jumped over Antiochus I and we're jumping now to Antiochus Theos. All right. So... They make an alliance. What they would a lot of times do was, if one king wanted to get in good with another nation, he'd take one of his daughters and marry it to the king of the other nation so the hopes that they'd, you know, we're family now, let's stop fighting with each other. Well, in order to do this, Antiochus Theos, who's in charge of the northern kingdom at this time, he divorced his wife, which was also his half-sister. Her name was Laodice. This didn't accomplish what either had hoped, and when Ptolemy II died, Antiochus Theos took back his former wife, Laodice, but when she returned, she was angry, and she killed her husband, Antiochus Theos. She killed Berenice and the son that they had made, a woman scorned. Go read verse 6 again. After some years... The king of the north and the south are going to make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south is going to come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, and he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. She comes and kills all those people. Go to verse 7 now. And a branch from her roots... One, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and the, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but, she shall, but shall return to his own land. Now, um, I forgot to tell you at the end of verse 6, Laodice 
after she killed her husband Antiochus II and Berenice, his wife, and the son that they had made, she made Seleucus Callinicus her, the ruler now in Syria. You see him listed. Seleucus Callinicus is now her son, probably from a previous marriage or from her husband before he married Berenice. We don't know, or at least I don't know. All right, but now verse seven says the branch from her roots, this guy that's listed is Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III. All right, so Ptolemy III, angry about his sister's assassination, he attacks Syria and Seleucus Callinicus, and he takes away much spoil. Later on, Seleucus Callinicus tries an attack on Egypt, but it doesn't accomplish much. And that's what set verses 7 through 9 said would happen. A branch from her roots, which is the brother of, of, uh, of Berenice, and Ptolemy III, he's going to rise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He shall deal with them and prevail. He'll also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he'll refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but it's not going to do anything, and he's going to go back to his own land. Now let's go to verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the wars as far as his fortress. Now his sons, again, the last one being mentioned was Callinicus. All right, Seleucus Callinicus. His sons, their names are Seleucus III and Antiochus III. All right, you see them listed in your list? Callinicus' son, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, would eventually have the military success that their father never could. When Seleucus III dies in battle, though, his brother Antiochus III takes over Syria, and he became one of the most powerful kings of the north. You see his name there. He's known as Antiochus the what? The Great. And he actually was king for quite a few years. All right? And he's quite powerful. You're going to see him mentioned for a while in the prophecy here. In three military campaigns against the Ptolemies of Egypt, he takes city after city in Israel, and during the reign of Ptolemy IV, Philippator, the kingdom of Syria comes all the way down to the borders of the kingdom of the south, and Israel is now again under Syrian control. So who had them at first? Syrians, briefly, and then the king of the south took them, and now they're back under Syrian control. And actually, the kingdom of Syria is so far down, it's actually to the border of Egypt. All right? Under Antiochus the Great. Let's go and read that again now in verses 10. Uh, uh, verse 10. He shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, and which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. By the way, when it says it keep coming, how many, how many battles did, was that? I just told you. Three. Very good. All right, verses 11 and 12 now. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. And Ptolemy IV now. In 217 BC, stage a, ma stage a ma major battle against Antiochus III with 70,000 soldiers on each side. And if you read the history of this, there were also dozens of battle elephants. All right, this was a big battle. 
Surprisingly, though, the king of the south defeats the armies of the north with Antiochus III barely escaping. Remember, he's made conquer all the way down to Egypt, but now for some reason the king of the south actually defeats him and the guy, Antiochus III survives, but he barely escapes with his life. He asks for peace, and Ptolemy IV grants it. So this great victory that Ptolemy IV got really didn't do him any good. Read verse 11 again in 12. Then the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, Antiochus III, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude's taken away, his heart shall be exalted, He'll, he shall be cast, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he won't prevail, just like history showed. Oh, by the way, anybody want to take a guess who's, un, who's controlling Israel now? The south. All right, so have you kept track? Syria, then Egypt, then Syria, then Egypt. It's two to two right now. And they're just a pawn as these armies and nations are fighting each other. Now, as we're going to move on to the rest of the verses that we're going to study tonight, we're going to see the events of history starting to line up to fulfill the vision, as it says in verse 14, which we'll get to in a second. In order for the prophecies about the one who will prefigure the Antichrist to come true, Israel must be under the control of the northern kingdom at that time for those to happen. And you're going to see things starting to happen. Right now, Israel's under the control of the southern kingdom. Look at verses 13 through 16. For the king of the north shall again. So who is it still? Antiochus III. Very good. Antiochus III, the great. The king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Hang on for a second. Who's talking? Who's speaking right now? The angel. And he's talking to who? Daniel. So when the angel tells Daniel... Your people, the violent among your own people will lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. Who's he talking about? The, the Israelites, the Jews. All right. Keep reading. But they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up a siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land. Where's that? That's Israel, with destruction in his hand. Now, after having been defeated, Antiochus III took some time to amass a larger army, just like we saw, to one day attack the south again. And in 203 BC, Ptolemy IV and his queen died suddenly and mysteriously. So the throne of Egypt was then occupied by Ptolemy V, who was only six years old at that time. Antiochus III saw this as his time to attack, and with the help of his new ally, Philip of Macedon, he does. And the Egyptian situation was also weakened by the fact that there were many people, not only in Egypt, but in Israel, who were tired of the reign of the Ptolemies, and they helped the northern invaders, just like the prophecy said in verse 14. But in their eyes, they're trying to fulfill the vision. But it doesn't fulfill the vision, because the vision's not going to be fulfilled until the end. All right? They're thinking, we're going to 
get out underneath from their control. We're not going to be under anybody's thumb anymore. We're going to fulfill the vision of the Messiah. And they failed. So Antiochus III did as he pleased, just like verse 16 said. And in doing so, the beautiful land, Israel, was firmly in control of Syria and soon the one who would prefigure the Antichrist. We'll get to him in much more detail next time we study. Look at verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Now, who's the he spoken of here? I'm seeing if you're tracking with me here. It's tied to who was just last mentioned, Antiochus III, the great. Remember, he's doing as he wills. He's in the glorious land. He is going to set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He's going to bring terms of agreement to the southern kingdom and perform them. He's going to give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand to be or be to his advantage. Now, in effort to gain full control over Egypt, Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra, not the one you all know. There were many Cleopatras. In an effort to gain full control over Egypt, Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra to be married to Ptolemy V, even though he was still very young at this time. Okay? Yeah, she's babysitting, but you have to realize, Antiochus III has a reason for having his daughter Cleopatra go and marry one of the, top, the king of the Ptolemies. He wants to gain control. The kid's young. She's his wife. He's thinking she's going to be more loyal to daddy than she will be her husband. Now, before I tell you what happens, you've got to also note that at this time, Rome is rising in power on the world stage, and they were showing interest in this young man, Ptolemy V. Antiochus uh, III most likely tried to make an alliance with Egypt by giving his daughter in marriage, but Cleopatra's loyalty was not more to her father than her husband, as he had possibly hoped. She actually wasn't a daddy's girl. And she actually was more for her husband and her own power than she was her dad. Just like the prophecy here in verse 17 said. Look at verses 18 and 19. Afterwards, he shall turn, this is Antiochus III, his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Antiochus III foolishly now invades the area of Greece and the islands of Greece on the coastlands. You see it? Even though Rome tells him not to. He was defeated twice by the Roman general Cornelius Scipio, thus opening the door to more Roman victories later on. Greece is losing its kingdom and its power. Remember, after Alexander the Great, they weren't the all-powerful nation because they're too busy fighting with each other right now in their kingdoms for all these years. Rome's growing on the world stage, and Rome's actually starting to call the shots a little bit. They're not in full control yet, but they're starting to call the shots. They told uh, Antiochus III, don't you dare go over there. He does, and he gets defeated twice. And by his weakening, being weakened, Rome's growing in power. Now, Antiochus III retreats to Syria, and he does something very foolish. He robs the temple of Jupiter to help his cash flow problems. This now causes a rebellion and the death of Antiochus III. They've been putting up with all his exploits, but when he goes and robs the temple of one of their gods to help with his cash flow problem, they killed him. 
Now look at verse 20, our last verse for today. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Now this verse deals with the short time of the rule of Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV. You see him listed there, Seleucus IV. All right, he was not very popular with his subjects because he exacted heavy taxes on everyone. And by the way, why do you think that Antiochus III's son was exacting heavy taxes on everyone? For the same reason his dad went to the... Cash flow problem. You remember the dad had a cash flow problem and he passed it on to his son now. And so the son then says, I ain't robbing in the temple of Jupiter. That got my dad killed. And so he decides to exact taxes on everybody. And he's not popular. And you see it then, verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. Oh, by the way, he not only taxes his area, who is also under his control at this time? Israel. And he sends a tax collector named Heliodorus to Jerusalem to plunder treasure from the Jewish temple. So Lucas IV would die from poisoning at the hands of Heliodorus. And the next king to arise on the scene, according to your chart, is who? Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you see him? Y'all ever heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? We've been looking at him a lot already in our study of Daniel, and you're about to learn a lot more about him. And I pray you're able to be with us when we get back together in a couple of weeks, because he is going to be a prefiguring of the actual Antichrist who is going to come. And so what I want you to, if you want to study ahead of time, we're going to be covering verses 21 through the end of the chapter next time we get together. Verses 21 through 35 talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 36, there's a break in the prophecy. And verses 36 to the end of chapter 11 are going to deal with the Antichrist, the one who is still yet to come. All right? So... Next time we get together, we're going to look at Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 21 through 35. And then we're going to take a look at prophecies that deal with the one who is still to come, the Antichrist. All right. Thoughts before I send you home early tonight? Overwhelmed? Let me tell you, that was a lot of work to get all this put together and make it palatable and hopefully swallowable. Yes, ma'am. No, the 400 silent years are still yet to be. They're about to, they're actually, they're actually, let me back up and say, yes. Part of this is happening because actually during the 400 silent years uh, are actually right around uh, the 400, uh, late 300s. Once you get Ezekiel and Malachi and, and that's the last thing you get. So yes, I back up. Most of this is happening during the 400 silent years. Alexander the Great is during the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Uh, the Romans are during Malachi and Matthew. So yes, I actually answered too quick. A lot of what we looked at is happening during the 400 years of silence. Is that where Maccabees is in the Catholic Bibles? Maccabees is in there. The Maccabees are the ones who fight against Antiochus Epiphanes and all that kind of stuff. But that's why that's in the Catholic Bible in between the Testaments and all but again, it's just never been proven to be an accurate, you know. There's some things that it might be, but the whole book, it's really not God wrote this kind of a thing. But I'm glad you brought that up. Because even though God was silent, I've never thought of this until tonight when you asked this question. 
Was God silent about these 400 years in between Malachi and Matthew? He told them already about it. So even though he wasn't speaking right now during those times, he was. He had told them. And if they were faithful to his word, they would know what was happening as it happened. That's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up. Anybody other? Other questions, thoughts? A dry erase report would be good. Trust me, we did this last night, not only to a room of about 100 folks, but also on live on Facebook. It was hard for the poor people on Facebook because they didn't have this. And we were trying to put it on the screen and type it in the comment section and say, we're really sorry. We hadn't thought about the fact that all the people watching online were going to struggle with it. But they have come up with some way to put it on there now and all that. So, But yes, but I'll be honest with you. If I tried to use a dry erase board, we'd been here a lot longer than we are now. I knew that history, there are going to be some people that just ate it up. You love history. Others are like, I didn't think I'd ever have to go back to school, you know. We're going to start looking at more scripture again next week. There's going to be some more history, but we're also going to start looking at some more scripture as well. All right. Thank you for your patience. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Love you.